This is the Alone With Our Principles podcast, episode 10. You sounded like Dirty Harry just then. I'm Chris. And I'm Eric, and we're both elementary school principals in Hesperia Unified School District in Southern California. On this episode, we will talk leadership philosophy with our superintendent, David Olney, and city of Hesperia's assistant city manager, Mike Blay. Alone With Our Principles is unofficially sponsored by Papermate Pink Pearl Erasers. They're perfect for the times that you aren't. Don't mess with the bull, young man. You'll get the horns. You've got a real attitude problem, that's why you're a slacker. So far this semester, he has been absent nine times. I'm the principal, man. All right. Well, welcome, Mr. Olney, Mr. Blay. Thank Good you. Good to be here. Good day, gentlemen. Happy yeah. Friday. Yes, Friday the 13th. What about yes. That's right. You know, when I just realized that, I think a little while ago, I was like, oh, I almost made it through the day without even acknowledging it. Now it's here. But in any case, so Mr. Blake, you are our first uh, guest to be joining us on our, our fairly new podcast here that is not an administrator in the school district. So welcome. Thank you. I'm honored. So we've had nothing but educators, and you get to represent the rest of the world. The real world? <laughs> Yeah, so you know what, I'm going to go ahead and pick on you first, and, and, and I'll ask you if you could just maybe tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, your experience, and uh, yeah. You know, I came about this assistant city manager job in kind of an unusual fashion. I, uh, out of college, I, I started a career in law enforcement. I worked for San Bernardino County Sheriff's Department uh, for 20 years, and uh, an on-the-job injury uh, forced me into some retirement and uh, to reinvent myself, so I went back back to school, uh, grabbed myself a master's degree, and um, went into the private sector for a little bit uh, until uh, Mr. Benson called me from the city of Asbury, asked me to come work for him. And so I've been there for just under five years now. I oversee planning, engineering, building and safety, community development, code enforcement, and animal control. I heard the code enforcement department can be a little bit tricky and a little bit difficult to work with. Uh, You know, they can. this, the current supervisor, who's just about to retire, she's quite chatty. So, uh, if yeah, if you're looking to get some details out of her, you better be patient. I've, I've heard that. She sounds interesting. Full disclosure, my wife is the supervisor of code enforcement for the city of Asperia, so. And I'm going to miss her when she retires. Wait, she's chatty? Oh, a little bit. <laughs> chatty? I was thinking she's code enforcement and she's married to him. Exactly. <laughs> All right, well, Mr. Olney, how about your background and experience and what led you to the superintendentship? Wow, I tell you. Um, well, uh, when, it, when I graduated from, uh, from college, I, I really had no idea what I wanted to be when I grew up. And so uh, my mother suggested that, yes, my mother suggested that I, that I go into teaching because I was good with kids. And, of course, uh, you know, when you're a young 20-something-year-old young man, the last thing you want to do is what your mother tells you to do. And uh, so I, I actually had applied for a few different jobs. Uh, was actually offered a offered a management job, and um, the guy looked at me. He says, "You know, you've answered all the questions right, and and I'm willing to hire you, but I, I've got to ask you, do you really want this job?" And you know, this is in the middle of the interview, and I looked at him and I said, "No," and uh, left. <laughs> um, so I I started substitute teaching, and uh, it was really just something to to pay my bills while I was trying to figure out where I wanted to go next, and I absolutely fell in love with teaching. 
And so that was down in Riverside. Um, I'm now in my 33rd year in education. Um, I've taught at all three levels, the elementary, middle, and high school level. And I've been an administrator at all three levels. Had the uh, pleasure to open two schools in this school district as principal, um, which has just been a dream. And you know, now I'm, I'm truly honored to be, to be the superintendent. Outstanding. So, uh, yeah, thank you for sharing that with us. Uh, we don't have our fact checker here right now, so... Might be a good a time as any to start the quiz. I'm a man of respect around here. They love me around here. I'm a swell guy. All right, uh, we'll start up the quiz here. Uh, it's basically a way we ask three simple questions, uh, simple depending on how far you want to go with it, just to help our listeners get to know you just a little bit better. Uh, so, uh, Mr. Belay, we'll start with you. If you'd like to share a funny or memorable story from when you were a student in school. Well, you know, it's interesting that uh, Dave consulted his mom for his uh, career choice. Um, when I thought that you might ask me that question, I, I resorted to calling my mom. And she reminded <laughs> me about a time uh, when I was in kindergarten. And I, I, I came home from, from school the first week of kindergarten and said, you won't believe it, mom. I'm the second toughest kid in the class. <laughs> and she said, well, how in the world would you know that you're second toughest? And there was feats of strength involved on the playground um, and uh, a small king of the hill battle, uh, which I was a finalist and got, I got pushed down uh, second from the last. So I, was, I deemed myself the second toughest kid in my kindergarten class. Do you remember who was first toughest? No, I do not. <laughs> oh, that surprises me. I was fully expecting the day. You don't day. remember her name. <laughs> no, I do not. Uh, it was a tough girl that lived around the corner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yep. Uh, Mr. Olney, same question from when you were in school. You know, I'm going to really regret telling this story. Oh, uh, good. Leaning forward with uh, interest. Yes. Yeah. So, um, when I was in uh, junior high school, so we all know how tough it is to be in junior high school and to be, be that age, um, I had had the crush on a, a young lady, of course, and, and it drove me into um, being involved in the drama program. <laughs> and um, so we were um, doing a, a play, and the drama teacher, Mr. Serafino, who, who was just an amazing guy, decided to change it up a little bit, and the uh, part that I was cast in, which was a detective, he decided to change. Now, before I tell you what he decided to change it to, i got to tell you that in junior high school, um, I was probably, I think there were two boys in a rather large downtown Long Beach junior high school that were smaller than I was. Two. Only two. Only two. Uh, you know, in when the third smallest kid in his career. I can relate. Um, when, when the wind blew, I put rocks in my pockets. Let's just put it that way, right? <laughs> he decided to change the part to Superman. <laughs> and so the young lady that I had a crush on oh, no. took me shopping down at the Lakewood Center Mall to the hosiery department. And we got a Superman outfit, and so I was on stage in tights as Superman, <laughs> carting off one of the larger young men in the school at the end of the play. So that uh, yeah, was, was, was a little on the embarrassing side. I bet. 
I'd do anything for a pretty girl. Yeah. That's right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Superman it is. There you go. It could have been worse. Um, <laughs> all right. So question two in our quiz is, uh, what's the best job you've had outside of your film? We'll stay with Steven Strong. You know, uh, uh, when, I, when I thought about this question, this is, this is actually a tough question because I've, I've done a lot of things. Um, you know, I, I, I've, from, from 12 years old, mowing lines, and I worked as a, as a, a busboy at a Chinese restaurant, um, uh, you know, did the fast food that everybody does. But I, I'm going to say my, my favorite job outside of uh, education, I was a, a waiter at a, at a Mexican restaurant when I was in college. And the reason I'm going to say, and you know, I am doing this for brownie points. Um, the why it's the best job is because that's where I met my wife. Um, and it go. was a Mexican restaurant. Well she came in with her friends and ordered a cup of coffee. And I told her, I said, "This is a Mexican restaurant. You have to have a margarita." And it was the start of our first of many fights. And uh, <laughs> finally, as usual, I did win. And okay. uh, she ordered a margarita, and then I asked for her ID, and that's how I found out her name. You taking notes there, uh, Chris? <laughs> yeah, we're going to fact check this one, Dave. You said you've won many fights okay. with Max? Okay. He didn't put a number on it. It was just many. Right. So, yeah, I don't know how you checked that. but <laughs> well, I, I've got some ideas. Um, <laughs> all right. Yeah, so I almost stumbled I almost stumbled over this question because so far we've asked, what's the best job we've had outside of education? Obviously, that's not your particular field of expertise at this time. So outside of your current field, what's the best job you had? You know, uh, I, I think I have to go back to my law enforcement career. I liked it that uh, every day was different, um, especially on patrol. So when you, when you logged in at the start of your shift and you got into that car, you had no idea what was going to happen that day. And, and uh, you know, for a, a young man, and by, by the time I went to patrol, I was, uh, you know, in my late 20s. Uh, it, it was ex kind of exciting, and you got to be outdoors, and you, you got the freedom to, to make decisions in the field. And when we talk later about leadership, a lot of my ideas about leadership come from um, the ability uh, you know, of an officer in the field to make a decision without consulting a whole bunch of experts, or your boss, or your wife, I mean, it, because there's no time for that. And so... Um, uh, I, I really enjoyed my career doing that. I anticipated spending 30 years doing that, and so I, I got cut a little bit short, and uh, uh, I still miss it. All right, and then uh, the last question, a skill, talent, or hobby of yours that would surprise your, your colleagues, coworkers? Uh, I'll start with you, Mr. Elney. Well, I think, you know, when you've been in this district as long as I have been, it's, it's hard to... Uh, think of something that nobody nobody knows because um, I've just met so many great people here over the last 20 however 25 years or whatever it's been um, but I think probably what some don't know is uh, I'm actually a pretty good cook and I do enjoy cooking that uh, seems to be a recurring right. theme in these we've got a lot of good cooks in our district or at least self-proclaimed good self-proclaimed <laughs> I think I'm a good cook yeah see I have no such delusions about myself but, uh, <laughs> you know? host a potluck and find out yeah that's right you should so anyway yeah so, Chef Dave, yeah, Chef what's, Dave. What's your specialty? You know, I don't know if I really have a specialty. I like to dabble in a little bit of everything. Um, you know, I, I have a, a I think a, a pretty decent paella restaurant uh, recipe that I that I do every now and again. Um, I grilled some amazing chili and sea bass uh, a week ago. So nice. I just 
I like to try different things, and this was another skill that I, I you know, I can go back to my mom with because my mom was an amazing cook. I mean, I know everybody says their mom was, but uh, she, she truly was just absolutely incredible. And we, we, my dad was in the Air Force, so uh, we traveled all over the world, and wherever we went, my mother would learn how to cook the local cuisine, and so she could cook. Uh, Filipino food, oh, uh, Japanese food, uh, Mexican and Italian food. I mean, just just amazing. And it's so, amazing that you're so fit. I, know, but I, <laughs> I, I have to be. <laughs> if anything goes wrong, it's my head. It's my head in the smasher. All right, so that will lead us into our main topic of the day. We wanted to talk to both of you, and then Eric and I have our uh, have our perspectives as well on leadership in general. So let's actually let's start with you, Eric. Um, uh, leadership. The way we're going to do this is everybody select one leadership strategy that you feel is really important, kind of talk about why that's important to you, and maybe a quick example of when that has served you well uh, in your job. Yeah, so uh, thanks for putting me on the spot there. No Chris. problem, happy to I, do you're it. You're asking me to go before the superintendent, I appreciate that. There you go. <laughs> it's, like, it's like a concert. We start with the smaller acts, which would be you and me, and then we, we build up to the headliners. <laughs> Fair enough, but, but as long as I don't get gonged. <laughs> We're not going to the gong thing again. We talked about that the last episode. Um, yeah, I'm the I'm the only one that's officially been gonged on stage. So yeah. Anyway, Eric, leadership. Oh boy. Easy <laughs> you bought, topic. You bought, mean, you, know, you bought yourself a few seconds there, so stalled out a little bit. Um, you know what? I I'm just going to talk really briefly about. You know, it sounds kind of kind of um, cliche, but that idea of leading from a heart and leading with empathy. Um, you know, I, I've found especially now, in these last several months, um, as I've, uh, you know, attempted to, to, you know, lead a school, lead my staff, lead our students, and, and uh, you know, keep us all headed in the right direction, that with our staff, with our parents, with our kids, leading with empathy has been incredibly important, and being able to, um, you know, Put yourself in somebody else's shoes. Be in their position and understanding with our parents right now, specifically, the the toll that this has taken, that COVID has taken, and that school closures have taken, and job loss has taken, and all the things that have come along with what we've all been through lately. Um, you know that idea of seeking to understand and then to be understood. Um, I spend a lot more time now listening than speaking than I ever have, because ultimately when I'm I'm working with a family member or a staff member who is struggling for whatever, we're all struggling in some capacity. Um, more often than not, if I listen long enough, I found out that there's things beneath the surface that aren't part of the conversation initially, right? So I'll, I'll use an example of a parent who calls because they're frustrated with uh, the teacher or with the technology that they're, they're having trouble with. And if you listen long enough and ask the right questions, you find out that it's much deeper than that. And you know, if you don't take the time to be empathetic and understand and, and let them know that you really understand what they're going through and make connections. Like, you know, I, I use my own self a lot and as I'm relating to parents. It's like, I understand. I've got three kids of my own. This is how each, and I'll, I'll tell them this is how each of my kids is struggling through the pandemic because it's different for each kid, right? And so I'm finding that when I, when I do that, it, it helps level the playing field a little bit. It's not a parent talking to a principal, but it's a parent talking to a parent. And all of a sudden, that, that effective filter comes down, and um, they'll start to really get to the root of the problem. They'll start with, well, I, I can't get into Google Meet. It's not working. <laughs> but they'll end with, you know, I, I lost my job. They'll end with, um, I don't know how to pay the rent. They'll end with, my kids are, you know, you get into some really heavy, difficult conversations, but you're also building connection. You're building a relationship, and you're building a common understanding that ultimately when we get past this, 
it's only going to serve the, you know, us, us, me, us, the school, the family, it's only going to serve to strengthen that bond. And ultimately it's going to impact our kids in a way that's going to benefit them in the long run. We're constantly looking for silver linings. And I do believe that the connections we've built with some of our families, that is a huge silver lining because it's going to transcend any pandemic, any crisis right. we go through. Cause I have met some parents and informed relationships that without this would not have happened. Yeah, the situation is going to pass, but the relationships are going to endure, especially at the elementary school level, for, right. for up to seven, eight years in some cases. Yeah. Uh, so good. All right, Mr. Blay, a leadership strategy that you found effective for you. You know, leadership is one of those uh, things sometimes it's, it's difficult to put your finger on it. But you know when you see it, and you know when it's lacking, but describing it sometimes is a little bit right. difficult. Um, one of the strategies that I employ and uh, it, it does a lot of it goes back to my days in law enforcement. I like to push decision making down to the lowest possible level. I think uh, when people are allowed to make decisions that relate to, directly to their job, they take ownership uh, of that decision, they take ownership of the program and the buy-in on what you're trying to accomplish. Um, and uh, it helps them develop and grow uh, and maybe perhaps uh, be, um, the person that, that follows you in, in, in your role. And so you're preparing a succession plan by forcing people to make decisions appropriate to their level in the organization. For example, you know, at, at, at the city, um, we have a water district. And um, when people got their water shut off and came back in to reconnect, they would have to pay a, a $100 deposit because you, know, you didn't pay last time. And to get a deposit out of you. If they struggled to come up with the money to do that, a manager could override that requirement. And, and, and so I, I was mentoring that manager and I said, do we trust these people to make a $100 decision? And the answer was yes, they, we do. They're, they're tenured right. employees, they know, they know the water district, they know, and, and yes, and, and um, they have embraced that and, um, and, and bought into that and appreciate the fact that management trusts them to now make this $100 decision. And yeah, so it gives them, you know, it gives them the confidence that they need too. That, absolutely. And so it, 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 at all levels, I like to push decision making down. But when we do that as a leader, uh, you also have to allow the people to make mistakes because they sometimes will make the wrong decision. And, and I like to use those as learning experiences and not beat them up over it. They, they'll beat themselves up way more than I'll ever beat them up. And that was kind of what I wanted to follow up. You're kind of leading right into yeah. that. And, and Dave, maybe you have some input on this too. When, when you see, because you have to delegate decision-making authority. You can't make every decision in the school district or for the city. So when you see somebody uh, under your supervision and you see them making a mistake that you might either question as far as whether or not it's gonna work or you see them walking right into a mistake, when and how do you decide to let them make the mistake and learn from it or when to step in to keep them from making that mistake? Because it seems like it would be a valuable thing to kind of, you know, let people develop their own learning experiences without putting their job or, or sure. anything else at risk. So how do you how do you kind of know where that line is? You know, I, I think Mike hit on, a, hit on a key word there, and that that is ownership. And if you're always stepping in and making that that decision for someone, they really don't don't own the decision, right? right? They, they, do, they don't feel part of the organization because they're just being dictated what, what to do. And I think that, uh, you know, you, you, you said something that I think is, is so poignant. 
which is they'll beat themselves up more. But they're only going to beat themselves up if they feel that they had that, that authority in the first place. If they, they had the ability to make that decision and then they made the wrong one, if they truly own that, they're, they're going to make sure it doesn't happen again. And they're going to learn from it. And that's truly, if you're going to have a powerful organization, whether it's a city, whether it's law enforcement, whether it's you know a school district, it's it's really that that um, that people feel a part and and that they own that decision. They're all in, right? And if all they're feeling is that they're being dictated to, they're not going to have the same stock in in that decision, right? Right. So, so and Mike, what about you? When do you know when to step in and when to let somebody kind of run with it? I think it's the magnitude of the consequences. I, I think uh, I would I, I would stand by and let someone make a hundred dollar mistake. I wouldn't let them make a million dollars. <laughs> Good call. Absolutely. So I, I think the magnitude of the consequences of of even if I see that they're about to trip over their decision, um, that if the consequences are fairly mild, nobody's going to get hurt. And, and that's the easy thing about. Um, you know, coming from law enforcement, when people come to me in a panic, oh my, the sky is falling and, and what's happening? Well, well, um, our code enforcement truck broke down. Okay. Anybody going to die over it? Is anybody, is, you know, is somebody going to get hurt? Is somebody, no, 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 it's just broke down on the side of the road. Okay. We can Stay get there. that fixed. Yeah. yeah. We can get it towed. We can, and so, um, I, I think I, I'm able to uh, provide a, a bit of a calming influence in, in that regard. Um, and it, it's the same when people make a mistake. They'll sheepishly come to me and say, hey, I made a mistake. Hey, what happened? Lay it out to me. Tell me what, you know, maybe a mistake I didn't see coming. I couldn't yeah. have prevented. And uh, we just use it as a learning experience. And uh, they won't make that mistake again, right. <laughs> uh, for sure. And also, too, it's comforting for them to know that their boss isn't going to crucify them over every error they make. Right. And, and that's the kind of leader that I, I, I try to, to, to be. Uh, I keep the small things small and the big things big. Yeah. Good. I wanted to talk about one that I got from, um, from a book by Todd Whitaker. Uh, and I'll try to keep it uh, short, concise, and to the point because, uh, Mike, I've heard that you prefer that. So, Mogger <laughs> um, family is not known for that. <laughs> no, no, we're not. We're known for a lot of things, but our shortness and to the point are not not among the list. So, anyway, uh, Todd Whitaker mentions um, the importance of when you're making a critical decision, and you know that different people have a different level of involvement. Uh, you ask yourself, who's going to be the most comfortable and who's going to be the least comfortable by a decision you make? Uh, and a lot of times, it comes down to holding people accountable. Um, so the example that I actually had to deal with early on in my, in my career as a principal is there was a few, a few teachers, two or three teachers who I noticed were coming in later and later each day. They were missing the, their official start time to the point where it was they were getting there just as the bell was ringing. And it's like, obviously, you need to address this. Um, so what, you know, what I think the terms that are used there, is it sniper leadership or shotgun leadership, oh, which yeah. is a little bit too violent and an aggressive <laughs> analogy that we're comfortable using in education, might be in your wheelhouse. <laughs> but but for us, it's a, it's a little, but the, the point being is you have the hard conversations with the people that you need to have the, converse, the hard conversations with. And a mistake I think that a lot of leaders make, they'll see uh, the two or three employees 
um, that they need to address, but they don't want to. They don't want to call them in because one of them, you know, might start crying, get all emotional. The other one might bring in the union representative, and who wants to deal with that? So instead of having those difficult one-to-one -one conversations, you send out an email. Uh, that says something, uh, dear staff. To everybody. Right. You, you just throw it out at the whole staff. You say, you know, I've noticed a few people are coming in late. Remember, the start time is 7.50. Um, please do your best to get here on time for the students, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, if this continues, it may lead to further action up to and including discipline. So you send that to 60 employees at the school. Well, when you do that, you immediately think, who's going to feel the most comfortable right now? the two or three people that you're really addressing it to because they're going to look at it, they're going to read that email and say, oh, wow, I know that I've been late, but if you're sending this email out to everybody, I couldn't possibly be the only problem. So suddenly, they're going to feel way more comfortable in it. Now, who's going to be the least comfortable? It might be your best employee that's never been late. They'll think of that one time that they were three minutes late because their kid you know, was sick or they had to drop them off somewhere or there was some crisis at home miss their time by you know five minutes they're sitting there reading that email going oh my goodness he's talking about me so now you've made your most effective people that you didn't you wouldn't even know you didn't even notice the one time that they came and they would never have thought about them they feel really uncomfortable whereas the people that you know needed the message feel the most comfortable so uh, the way around that of course is you just sometimes you just have to call the people in one-on-one -on -one, tell them here's what you need to know here's what needs to needs to be fixed uh, so you don't stress out the people that you don't think you're not addressing it to. So, yeah, your best people should always be the most comfortable uh, in your workplace or in your school. It's also one of those like hundred dollar mistakes you were talking about, right? Because I mean, you, I mean, you, it sounds like you said you you made that mistake earlier on your administrative career, and I did as well. And you know, but that's one of those mistakes. Like if I hadn't done it and seen the fallout from it, I wouldn't have learned right. necessarily by somebody else coming and telling me, "Oh, don't do that. You need to do it this way." Versus me going through the experience, seeing how it impacts the people that I love, serve, and care about, and then realizing, "Okay, next time I've got to do it differently." Not be selfish because really it is a selfish act to do it that way because it's easier. Oh yeah, to be a keyboard warrior and type yeah, out exactly. sin versus like <laughs> yeah. I need to call this person in, have a conversation with love and compassion and care, and then I need to call this person in, and we need to have that conversation. Um, with you know, um, with humility and, and with integrity, but um, yeah. It's, it's All right, Dave. What about you? Well, I was just going to piggyback on that because I thought that was uh, that, that's that's interesting. But I, and I know Chris, you know, you've read uh, Patrick Lencioni as, oh, yeah. as as I have, and and you know, one of the things that uh, Lencioni talks about is is the whole idea of trust and and. You know, you're you're not developing trust by shooting out a, a shotgun email, right? Um, but having those honest conversations. But it's going to go back, and I, I'm just going to piggyback a little bit on what Eric said uh, when he when he started this conversation, which is really uh, taking that time to to make build those relationships. And and you know, you guys know. I mean, I've I've spent the last uh, few years uh, talking a lot about the the power of listening, right? And I think that in terms of listening. Um, what I've shared with, with our administrators has been uh, some of the research uh, from a guy named Otto Sharmer. He talks about the different levels of listening. And so sometimes we just say, well, listening, okay, well, yeah, okay, I'm listening to you, right? Uh, but if we really just think a lot of times that when we get into a conversation with somebody that we've already downloaded what we want to hear from them, right? And so we get into that conversation and they may say something completely different, but we're listening for what we want to hear. And that truly isn't, isn't listening. And so then that next level of listening is trying to get to that, to that factual, what truly is being said, 
Right. I'm not writing down a fact check here. I'm writing down because that sounds like darn good advice. <laughs> Absolutely. And and below, or or I, I should say the the even deeper level of listening beyond factual listening is that, and I think you you talked about listening from the heart, yeah. and that's that that empathic listening, and really you know what is what's behind the words. Yeah. I mean, we can look at what the 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 words themselves factually mean. But what is truly trying to be said? And like you said, in a lot of conversations, you know, I've dealt as, as, a, as a principal with a lot of angry parents as well. And, you know, I've dealt with them as superintendent as well. But, uh, you know, a lot of times by the time you get to the end of, uh, end of the conversation, if you truly are listening and you're engaging in that conversation, oftentimes you find what, what they're angry about has nothing to do with... They first walked in with exactly. You know, I I I don't remember who it was. It might have even been you, Chris. I said, you know, I texted this. I said, you know, a lot of times the problem at hand is not the problem at hand. Yes. Um, (laughs) And so I think that's you know getting to that level of empathy and and truly understanding what the message really means. But that last level of less listening, which is which is so powerful, is that idea of generative listening. And generative listening is where we're actually fully engaged in the conversation. We're learning from each other. And um, I think with the work that we've done in this district over the past three and a half years, it has been about that idea of building, building that collaborative, collective effort to, to build this district together. And Mike, you talked about the the empowering those, um, you know, whether you want to call them, I hate using the term, but lower level managers or or just you know the, these employees to be able to make decisions that matter. Um, you can do that when you're engaged in that generative conversation and that we're actually creating this together because we all own it and and we create that ability for the autonomy but it's but it's to use Michael Fulham's words defined autonomy we're all in that direction uh, you know moving in that same direction we know what's truly important and when we know what we're about because of those deep conversations we can typically entrust people to make the decisions that's going to be aligned with where we're trying to get and so really you don't get there unless you really take the time to to be involved in that deeper level of listening and that deeper level of conversation the dialogue and i know chris you and i have talked about the difference between advocacy and dialogue Uh, the challenge i think for a lot of us we get into these positions of leadership because of the abilities that we have exhibited over the years it's very easy to get into a position of leadership and say I made it. This is this is you know I, I know, and so therefore I shall advocate for what I think is right. And there is a time for advocacy. Don't get me wrong, but if that's all you do, um, you're the only one that owns it. Right. And to move a large organization, it's only going to move if everyone owns it. Yeah, and that's you know my dad told me something like that a long time ago that that really kind of still resonates to this day. He says it's better to do right than to be right. Yeah. And, you know, I'm reminding myself of that all the time. So, all right, great discussion on leadership. These are all great points. I've been taking some good notes here, so, okay. My office is right across that hall. Any monkey business is ill-advised. All right, it's time for a little fun. This is our extra credit portion. Um, And, you know, in education sometimes, and I'm sure in city management, it's high stress. There's a lot going on. And one of the ways that I know educators certainly like to... uh, deal with or manage their stress is by having fun with each other. And specifically, I'm talking about 
maybe small, harmless, fun pranks that some may pull on each other from time to time. So our extra credit, extra credit question for you guys today. <laughs> or, uh, what, or again, in English. Wabbit, wabbit. <laughs> it's, four, it's 3 o'clock on a Friday. Uh, you know, but uh, yeah, I'd like to know, think about pranks for a second. What's the best prank you've ever played on someone or maybe that someone has played on you? How about you, Mr. Blake? You know, I probably have uh, one of each of those, and it doesn't involve really my career right now. I, I remember back in, in, in college, I went to Cal Poly Pomona, and uh, I spent a couple of years living at the fraternity house. And as you can imagine, there's some hijinks there. Uh, we had one, uh, one member who uh, was a pretty heavy sleeper, especially when perhaps he was also intoxicated. Um, we set up his entire bedroom in the front yard of the house oh, while he was sleeping. <laughs> the lamp, the, the bed, the dresser, the nightstand, everything was set up in the front yard with him in the bed. Um, he woke up just about dawn when, and you know, it was hard. We stayed up all night because we wanted to see his reaction and uh, his reaction was, was priceless. <laughs> Uh, one of the ones that uh, was played on me, um, I worked at a video store during uh, during college, and this was when the, the California lottery was real new. So we were all excited, and we had bought our our, our, our little tickets, and I had my numbers uh, on the on the uh, on the ticket, and they were sitting by uh, on the counter at work while we were going about our work, and and so one of the guys pretended to be on the phone calling his girlfriend to get the lottery numbers. Uh-huh. Okay. Oh, and he was writing them <laughs> down. Is he was writing them down uh, on a sheet of paper. Okay. Thanks, sweetheart. And uh, hung up. And I said, you get the lottery numbers? Yeah. I wrote them down over there. He played it real cool. He wrote it over, <laughs> over there. And so I pick up my ticket, which was sitting right next to where he was writing down. Coincidentally enough. And I started comparing the numbers. And I had one. I had two, I, I had ended up with five out of six numbers. So I thought, and I'm <laughs> jumping out of my shoes while so these three guys mean. are cracking so up, mean. just busting up. And I was like, oh man, you got me. So that's a couple of mine. There you go. He was rich for about three seconds. <laughs> yeah, I was already spent the money. Exactly. <laughs> See, what I like about that is they didn't go. They didn't give you six out of six because that would have been yeah, suspicious. Exactly. <laughs> you, you, you can't go too far. Gotta throw the trigger in there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh man. So. I'll go next. I, okay. I've got one. And Eric, when I was thinking about this, you may have actually been there when this happened. So this would have been when I was assistant principal at Eucalyptus. And every year we would have a staff Christmas party. And as part of the staff Christmas party, we would do the white elephant gift where you'd bring something and then somebody would unwrap it yeah. and they could either keep it or they could uh, you could steal from somebody else. Can you give away a picture of yourself? Let me tell the story. Oh, sorry. Um, <laughs> yes, I did. So the way that I would typically do this is I would wrap something ridiculous but I would always include like a gift card or a gift certificate somewhere. So there was an actual legitimate gift involved, but you wouldn't know that until the game kind of played itself out. So it started with a framed 8x10 portrait of myself. Uh, and of course, nobody stole it. But then at the end, when I say, okay, take the frame out, and there's a $50 gift card to wherever, it's like, hey, all right, that's pretty cool. I remember. Yeah. So for several years in a row, though, um, the gift that I gave was something that I stole from the office of the principal, Mrs. Yankaskis. 
So one year it was the nameplate from her desk that I wrapped up real nicely. Uh, one year it was the front license plate from her car. <laughs> so somebody opened that and she said, wait a minute, that's my license plate. But, but one year uh, she had a nice trophy uh, or a, a plaque from the California School Leadership Academy. You remember those? Remember those. It was the outline of California. Really nice. So I figured, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give that away. So I took it, wrapped it up, put a Baskin-Robbins gift certificate on it, just taped it on the back and wrapped it up, took it to the party. And that year at the party, we had a probationary teacher. It was her first or second year. And uh, she had a four or five-year-old son. And she had asked, you know, I really want to go to the party, but I don't have anybody to watch my son. Can I bring him with me? And we said, sure, we'd rather, we'd rather have that than you not go. We want you to feel welcome. All right, so she brings her son to the party. They're sitting on the couch. We're going through the white elephant thing. And she lets her son pick, and it's the gift that I brought. So I'm thinking, perfect, it's got a Baskin-Robbins gift card, gift certificate on the back for the kid. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to work out great. So he opens it up, unwraps it, looks, he goes, it's my first trophy. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the teacher... Uh, looks at the trophy, sees exactly what it is, and and the look on her face was like, oh boy. So, so she says, but no, no, it's it's the ice cream on the back. We need to give this back to we need to give this back to Mrs. Yankaskis, and he's there. But but I want the trophy, and he wasn't giving it up for anything. And now this probationary teacher looks petrified that oh geez, I can't get this back for my kid. Uh, so eventually there there were long talks and negotiations. And we were able to work a trade with this five-year-old boy for Jovi's California School, School Leadership Academy plaque. So that was... I would loosely define that as a prank, because that did not go the way you intended no, it to go at all. A, a lot of the pranks that I play end up backfiring on me, so that, there's more than one example of there that. Go, but, yeah. but that was I, clearly before every kid got a trophy. No, exactly. <laughs> this kid sure didn't. I forget what he ended up but he But he ended up with an actual gift and the ice cream, so... Nice. Anyway, so that was my Not bad. Yeah. yeah. So who's next? Dave. I guess that's me. Um, well, you know, I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share two stories, too, because I'm, I'm going to share one uh, that was actually where I, where I got pranked. And, and I should say it, it wasn't just pranked. I got pranked numerous times. Oh, um, as, as you guys know, I was in the district for, for 18 years, and, and then I took a, a five-year sabbatical. Um, so my, my last job before I left um, was principal of Cedar Middle School. And so I opened Cedar Middle School just to this day in terms of, I mean, it was just one of the most amazing staffs that I ever, ever had the opportunity to work, uh, work with at a school. And, uh, so, you know, I had let them know that, that I was leaving. And, um, so it was, uh, the last week, uh, of school and they decided every day, and I don't remember everything that they did, but every day they did something to me. And, uh, so I, I am not uh, a, a country music aficionado. I, I uh, prefer uh, jazz and rock and roll, but um, they are well aware of that. So I, I pull into the parking lot one morning, and there is a horse trailer in my parking spot um, with a horse. Oh, not just a trailer. The, the trailer. Um, I come in, and I've got bale, bales of hay and chickens Literally in my office. Five chickens in your office. Everybody's got their cowboy hats on, and through the all call, they've got country music just twanging away. Oh, jeez. Um, that that was that was probably I think that was probably the highlight of the week. That was that was that was my favorite. Um, but they also know that I'm a diehard Dodger fan, uh, 
and um, that I'm not an Angel fan by any stretch of the imagination. And so I pull in one morning and every single staff member is wearing Angel paraphernalia. <laughs> and literally what I did was went right back out into my car and I drove all the way home, which at this point, I mean, Cedar's out by Oak Hills. Yeah. I lived in Apple Valley. I drove all the way to Apple Valley, put on my Dodge jersey, and came back. Of to work. course, um, and we still have a have a picture. But of, the beauty of, of that is, you know, there there. were people that went out and had to buy oh, yeah. Angel yeah. stuff no, just to no. make that happen. There's there's no. a lot there's, there's a lot of respect there where people are going to make that no. investment. You know, it, it was it was an amazing week and uh, and just 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 a whole lot of fun. We 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 had a blast. Um, in terms of jokes that I. Pranked and I and Mike, I have to say I'm impressed that you could remember one from college that you could actually share because all the ones from college <laughs> yeah. I, I don't think this is a, an appropriate forum for me to share. Um, but I will say, and as as a uh, I was a I think an assistant principal at the time, and um, the the counselor and I had this ongoing feud of of pranks going for a period of time, and so one afternoon um, she left early. And uh, we had uh, all of the kids that were doing academic uh, or pentathlon um, after school. And so it was after school. Now, this is obviously before the Internet was in full swing. So we still had classrooms that got newspapers delivered to, to their door. And, you know, when the class sets of newspapers, when they were done, they would set them outside. And, uh, you know, the custodian would come along and load them up on the truck. So what we did is we got the uh, academic pentathlon students we loaded up all the newspapers onto the back of the custodial cart, and we created a line out the door and into her office. And it was just this wonderful little, we crunched up the paper, passed on to the next person, got it up to the person in the front, they threw it in, crunched it up, threw it in. We filled her entire office from floor to ceiling with, uh, with newspapers. And uh, so that was, uh, I thought that was a simple but effective. Uh, it, it was, it was. And, and uh, you know, it's recycling. It's there, yeah, never yeah, being right, unconscious. Yeah. That's, that's, awesome. that's exactly All right, Eric. So. Okay, so it up for us. I'm not a prankster because I don't want to get pranked back. And if you know anything about prank wars, is like once you start one, they tend to just <laughs> go on until you leave the school or you leave the place you're at. It just, and I never wanted a piece of that. But um, when I was at Eucalyptus, and I don't remember what year it was, but we had a, we had a core of teachers there, and if they're listening, they refer to themselves as the Jens. I think there were four of them, all like four Jennifers, all at once teaching at the school. And, um, and actually, the funny thing is that one of the Jennifers was the one with the son who opened the trophy. So there we go. It's all we're coming full circle. <laughs> I know exactly who it was. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. But um, so it was April Fool's Day. It was April first, and I was teaching next door to Scott Adams, who was still in the district. I believe he's at Cypress now. Had a lot of fun that year teaching next to him. It was a great year uh, teaching third grade. But um, April 1st, I'm not even thinking anything of it, but I'm walking around the side of the building there, and as I get around to see my door in my classroom, I see a female running out of my classroom and around the corner giggling. That's never a good sign. It's never a good sign. So immediately I know something's up. So, you know, I approach, I open the door, I pull the door back, I flip on the lights. My classroom is empty, completely empty. I walk through my classroom and into the pod, and much like yours that you described earlier, my entire classroom had been moved into the pod and set back up exactly like it was in my classroom. <laughs> Student desks, teacher desk, wall decorations, I mean, you name it. These, these gens worked literally all night long, and not only that, 
right next to my classroom set up in the pod was Scott Adams' classroom set up in the pod. They moved two classrooms <laughs> over the course of that evening, set them back up. They got Mr. Gunter's permission. They got the principal's permission. Right? And so they were covered, man. So I, I didn't have a leg to stand on. So you know what? Um, but like you said, when you, you, you get a good laugh out of it, you stop and think like, man, they went to a lot of work, a lot of effort to do this. They must really like me. It is. <laughs> now, now, how long did you stay in that setup? We stayed the whole day. Nice. We stayed the whole day. I don't remember if it was like on a Friday or something, but I walk in, Scott gets in, we're looking, we're just like in awe, we're having a good laugh, we're like, we know who did it, and you know, kids are coming in 20 minutes, it's like, well, I guess we're teaching in the pod yeah. today. <laughs> kids got a kick out of it, it was fun, you know, it, it's such a great memory, I, yeah. I think that. You know, you, you, you told me about April, or you mentioned April Fool's, and, and have you ever have you ever done a really good one to a student on April Fool's Day? Oh, well. I actually pranked the same student that you're you're referring to. I believe it's probably the same student. But okay. I probably shouldn't share that one. <laughs> actually, no. He's a teacher of, student, and, and mom was in full support. But yeah. looking back on it, it wasn't nice. He was a great. Well, speaking of April Fool's jokes, though, um, and we're going to tie this back to a previous uh, podcast guest, uh, Michelle Smith. Um, at Eucalyptus seems to be the prank <laughs> epicenter of the district, um, but her son Brian was in fifth grade good kid and it was april fool's day so i decided to play uh, an april fool's joke on him so i wrote up a fake discipline referral a completely bogus story um so i called him into the office i said brian what what went on this morning before school he said i don't know what you're talking about well i've heard from several parents that were dropping their kids off that you were throwing rocks over the fence and trying to hit the cars as they drove up why would you do this here I didn't do that. Well, that's not all. They said after you did that, you ran away and then pushed a girl off of the swings and were giving it. He goes, I wouldn't do that. And he wouldn't. He was a great kid. He wouldn't do any of this. It was completely made up. So I had him. I mean, I, he, he, wasn't, he wasn't in tears, but a couple of more little nudges would have gotten him there. He was, and so I said, Brian, I've, I've got a referral right here. And, you know, I've got witness statements. They're not going to lie to me. Two teachers saw you throwing the rocks. They're not going to know. And he said, but I don't know what to tell you, Mr. Mulgrew. I didn't do it. And they're, well, I need you to read the referral. And he read at the bottom, it said April Fool. And he goes, oh, you got me. Can you call my mom and tell her the same story? So we did. So, so, so we called Michelle and, and gave her the whole routine, and she That's bought great. it. Yeah. So, so I did something. I did something very similar because I had a had a young man who I, I knew the family very well. Um, you know, as a matter of fact, uh, the young man's um, little brother was at Mesquite Trails with my kids, and so we knew we knew them all real well. And so I, I pulled him into the office, and uh, you know this is junior high school, so we had to up it from throwing rocks. We, yeah, right. We said that he was in possession of an illegal substance, and uh, you know, and he's just telling me, Mr. Olney, I, I, I didn't do it. I, I'm telling you, I didn't do it. And and you know, again, almost didn't push him to the point of tears, right. but we were getting close. And I said, Look, Jimmy, I'm going to have to call your mom. And and so I pick up the the phone and I call his mom. And I said, hey, Jen, you know, this is Dave. I'm, I'm going to have Jimmy tell you why he's in the office. Didn't even say anything. So I just <laughs> handed it over. So when she got the uh, when he got the phone, she goes, April Fool's. Oh, it was nice. all set up ahead Perfect. Of time. Oh, Perfect. my gosh. So I ran into him. He's now a, a, an EMT. Actually, he's a fireman now. But he went in and became an EMT first. And uh, my wife was a, a RN down at uh, the emergency room in Kaiser. So I was down dropping something off for her, and he happened to be there. And of course, he just tells all his buddies about when he got pranked. Uh, so that was that was a pretty good one. Nice. All right. Well, that'll about wrap us up for today. Uh, thank you, uh, Mr. Blay. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Dave. Appreciate Great to be your here. time. Thanks for having me. 
Absolutely. All right. Well, we don't. Um, I did have time while while you were telling your story to do the fact check. Uh, it says Dave has won many fights with his wife Max. Uh, I, I did check with the official uh, authority on on spousal arguments, and uh, they tell me that that the record actually Max has a forty seven and three record in this. <laughs> Uh, in this that's, regard. That's probably pretty accurate. I, <laughs> I, I, I'm not sure that it's only been to 50 fights in the 30 years we've been right. married, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. So anyway, thank you again for being with us today. And we would like to remind our listeners to rate, review, or subscribe to Alone With Our Principles on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. And also follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash alonewitharprinciples. Thank you. And everybody have a great day. still here? It's over. Go home. <laughs>